Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Psalm 31, beginning in verse 9. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. As we come gather together to worship the Lord in his throne room this morning, as every week we come from, uh, we come as, as human creatures, we come as uh, people who bear our weakness in ourselves uh, every day. And the psalmist tells us this weakness, this, uh, this uh, tiredness that we bring is ultimately because of our iniquity. This, uh, our flesh enslavement to, uh, to death and to weakness, our susceptibility to weakness is ultimately because of our slavery to sin. We are those who've been delivered from sin. We've been bought by the precious blood of our Savior, uh, redeemed from the weight of sin and death, redeemed from the bonds of slavery. But we find ourselves here on this side of the, this side of the resurrection, we still are pulled in that direction. We are still pulled, tempted towards sin, tempted towards, uh, towards this uh, old master, and so when we come to the Lord's presence each Lord's Day, we find ourselves weary from a week of striving, a week of, uh, of striving to live and step, walk and step with the Spirit. The psalmist is telling us here that this weariness, this uh, tiredness that we feel is due to our iniquity, and so we are called to bring that iniquity before the Lord in confession. We are called to bring our sin before the Lord as we come into his presence, we need cleansing, we need restoration, we need to be lifted up. And the good news for us is that we have a Savior who, is, who has not rejected us, who has redeemed us in his Son, but when we come into his presence, he uh, calls us to confess, to come to grips with the reality that we are still a sinful people who need cleansing, who need forgiveness. And so, let's kneel together as we confess our sins to the Lord. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Paul is giving us in this text a narrative, a story, by which he is able to tie together all of human history, all of the history of God's creation and redemption. Stories fascinate us. A well-written story grabs our attention and, in a way, pulls us into its narrative. Uh, there's, I don't know if you enjoy literature as much as I do, but if you get into a, a well-written book, it can 
pull you in in a way that you know, makes you, uh, some, some books, make, it makes it hard to put the book down. Or uh, some, some television, of course, is, is uh, not worth watching. But then there are some shows that, you know, now that we have things like Netflix, and uh, we can just keep watching episode after episode. It's, it can be easy for us, if, it's a, if we're watching a good story, to just be pulled in and think, oh, sure, one more episode, and then before you know it, you've just binge-watched a whole season of, of something. But uh, stories pull us in because they present to us, uh, they present characters, they present compelling events, but they pull us in because they, they pull these events and the lives of these characters together into a cohesive narrative. We identify with characters in the story as we get into it. We're moved by their plight, uh, by their heroism, or by their suffering. Or we can, uh, full, we can feel the pull for a just outcome in the narrative. Uh, stories can open our eyes to the beauty of, of love, friendship, sacrifice. Or they can open our eyes to the depth of wickedness in, in the human heart, to the depth of wickedness in our, in our own hearts. But good stories tend to be compelling for us because they, in some way, pull the various events of the lives of their characters together in a coherent plot. And they do so in a way that, that gives them meaning, that gives them significance. If you notice that, one, one thing about uh, shows or, or, or uh, novels, that there, there don't seem to be any events that happen that are insignificant. If you, look, you think of your own life, there are all kinds of things that happen throughout the day that you know, completely unrelated to anything. And if you, were, if you were making a show about your own life, you wouldn't include, you know, you don't see people take a break to go to the bathroom in a, in a good show because it doesn't have any significance to the story. But stories pull together events in a way that gives them significance, in a way that, that, uh, uh, that gives their life, the life of the characters, meaning. We know that our own lives, in some way, are stories that are looking for cohesion. Of course, our own lives, we don't skip over the events and the uh, small things that seem to be meaningless or uh, that, we, uh, that are just necessities. But we know that our own lives, in some ways, are stories that are looking for some kind of cohesion as well. We love these stories because they help us to sort out how our lives fit into some grand narrative as well. In this text, Paul is telling this story. Our lives make sense. Our lives find meaning as we learn how our own lives knit into the story that Paul is telling. The plot of the story that Paul tells moves from creation to a new creation. It moves from creation, fall, into redemption, to a new creation. And it's in this story about Jesus as the Lord of the universe, the cosmic Lord, who reconciles the broken universe that we find our place in, it's in this story that we find meaning, that we find significance for our own stories, our own lives. We, Paul tells us, are Christ's body. We are objects of his grace. And we, Paul wants us to know, find our, own, our significance in this story as agents of his grace, agents of his reconciliation. This story can shake up our understanding of the gospel, the way that Paul presents the gospel in this narrative. The gospel is more than simply how Jesus saves you in, in this story. There's the, the gospel that Paul is presenting here is more than just how Jesus saves an individual. Uh, of course, Paul has a lot to say about how Jesus saves you individually, how Jesus saves sinners individually. But the way that Paul tells the story here shows us that the gospel is about far more than our own individual lives. The gospel is a grand narrative 
and it has a cosmic scope. The gospel is the story of how Jesus brings his creation to right. This is, the story is a cosmic gospel. Paul gives us the big picture of the gospel here. In this text, it's, a, and it's, it's often considered to be a hymn or a poem that Paul either incorporates into this letter and modifies or that he wrote. Uh, either way, it, it seems it's, it's poetic in structure. Uh, but Paul uses this poem that he either has, uh, has co-opted for his purpose in this epistle or uh, that, he's, uh, that he's written. He uses it to sing the praises of a Christ who is Lord of all. His purpose here is showing that Jesus is preeminent. Uh, Jesus is Lord of all things in heaven and on earth. The, and it can be divided into two sections. The first section, verse uh, 15 through 17, describe the lordship of Jesus over the order of creation, over, over all things in creation. The second section, 18 through 20, describe his lordship over the new creation, over a new universe, over a new reality that he brings into being. Paul's main message here is that Jesus, the revelation of God and the Lord of the universe, is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he is working to reconcile the fallen universe to himself, and he's doing so through his body, which is the church. And as reconciled people, Paul tells us that we are called to live holy lives. We've been reconciled, and that reconciliation bears implications on your life. We're called to live holy lives and to persevere in the hope of the gospel. Jesus is Lord of creation, of all things in creation, Paul tells us. In this first section, Paul establishes Jesus' lordship over the created order. He identifies him as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is, Paul tells us, the revelation of the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, if, if our calling as created beings is to, uh, to know God, to know our creator, then in, a, in some sense the invisibility of God uh, can be seen as a problem for us. We, we want to know God. We want to, to have some kind of contact, some kind of relationship with him. God's solution to that is not to simply remain far off, not to leave us, uh, not to abandon us. God comes near, and Paul tells us that he comes near by giving us a revelation of himself, and he does so in Jesus. The Apostle John tells us in John 1.18 that no one has seen the Father at any time. Uh, remember, in, in the Old Covenant, God was veiled from view uh, to the people of Israel. He had brought the people of Israel close to himself as his covenant people, and he came down and dwelled in their midst, in the tabernacle and in the temple, his glory was among them, and yet they were, uh, they were still, there was a veil between them and the presence of God. In the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place were sectioned off with veils, uh, with literal veils, so that the, the presence of God was, uh, was cut off from the people. But yet here in the incarnation, in, in Jesus coming to us in human form, God has removed that veil. God has revealed himself in his Son, when Philip comes to Jesus and asks him to show them the Father, Jesus answers, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to make the Father known, John tells us. He came to manifest the Father to the creation, to Israel, and to the whole world. He is the image 
or the reflection of God. In Jesus, we see who God really is. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to, uh, to know uh, who God is, what he's like, then look to Jesus. He is the image of God. Uh, one uh, theologian in the, in the 20th century, uh, Thomas Torrance, was a, uh, before his academic career, was a, a chaplain uh, during uh, one of the world wars, and, and he came back and, and reported that one of the most common questions that he would uh, receive from soldiers on the, on the battlefield, often wounded or uh, near death, was, uh, one, what is God really like? And then other soldiers w- would ask him, is God really like Jesus? Is Jesus really what God is like? And, and this impressed on him the importance of, uh, of the, uh, the truth that we truly know what God's character is like, who he is, because God has come to us in person, in the person of his son. There's no uh, mystery of who God is hiding behind the back of Jesus. God has revealed himself to us in his son. We have seen the father if we know the son. He is the God-man. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is the word incarnate. He is the new tabernacle where God and man meet. To see him, John tells us, is to see the father, and to know him is to know the father. He is, Paul says, the image of God. The image of God means, as we've seen, that he manifests God's character to us. He reveals the Father to us. But, of course, that is familiar language to us if we know uh, the scriptures from the beginning. God created man to be the image of God, right? In Genesis 1.26, we're told that man was made in the image of God, male and female, created in God's image. Man was made to image God in the creation. Uh, our, our purpose, the purpose of humanity is to manifest to represent the creator uh, in the midst of creation. But of course, it was just in that duty, that the, uh, just in that calling that we fell. Confronted by the creation, uh, the creation to whom uh, Adam and Eve were supposed to image the creator, confronted by the creation in the form of a serpent, uh, Adam and Eve failed to image God in faithfulness. They f- failed to reflect the character of God and to remain faithful to their creator. Instead, they followed the lead of the serpent, They exalted the creation, uh, listened to the voice of the serpent above the creator, above their Lord. Jesus, however, we're told here by Paul, is the true image of God. In a sense, Jesus is the the true human, the most human person there is, because he lives to the, uh, faithfully lives as God's image. Jesus is uh, the divine human. He is the God-man, and he is the most faithful human in the sense that he is the one who faithfully and truly images God to us, to the creation. The Son all along is the perfect image of God. So for Adam and Eve to have continued in faithfulness as God's image would have meant that in a sense they would have lived uh, as Christ lived. They would have lived Christ-like lives. To be living faithfully as the image of God is to be participating in the life of the Son of God. And for us to faithfully bear God's image, too, then, is to be Christ-like. We are called to live up to our created purpose, to image God, to be the image bearers of God in the creation. And now, just what that means, to be God's image, is manifest to us in Jesus, because he is, Paul tells us, the image of the invisible God. Paul tells us Jesus, this God-man, who is the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation, 
the firstborn of creation. Does this, this doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus is the first thing that God created. Uh, that was one of the heresies that the church confronted early on, that Jesus is the, the highest of all of God's created beings, that Jesus was created first of all, and God placed him, uh, adopted him as son, and placed him above the, the rest of the created order. Uh, the, the church responded uh, emphatically that that is not who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He has been with the Father uh, from all ages. What does firstborn of all creation mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus is firstborn? The term that's used here in the Greek doesn't, doesn't only have to do with, uh, with the sequence of birth. It doesn't only mean one who's born before all the others who were born. Uh, this has to do with rank as well. In, the, uh, in a household, the firstborn is the one who held the highest rank uh, under the father, under the head of the house. In Psalm, uh, Psalm 89, we read of, uh, this is a psalm of, of the, uh, about the offspring of David, who ultimately we know is Christ himself. We read there that uh, God says he will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Uh, Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he, is, he ranks above all. He ranks over all the kings of the earth. God's son from eternity has been the firstborn of all creation. He, uh, God created the world and under um, the whole created order is under the, the lordship of God's son. All things are under him. Jesus as the firstborn, we're, uh, uh, we can understand he is the, the wisdom of God. In Proverbs 8, uh, we read that uh, God's wisdom uh, is spoke of in a personified way. God's wisdom uh, was with God from the beginning, and it was by God's wisdom that he made all things. Jesus is the true manifestation of God's wisdom, the wisdom by which God created the world. Why is this? It's because... In him, all things were created. Jesus is the firstborn. The, uh, he ranks over all because in him, Paul tells us, all things were created. The term that's used here uh, in verse 16, it says there, by him in, some, in the ESV, but it can be translated and I think could be tr- should be translated, in him all things were created. Yes, all things were created by him. Uh, John tells us uh, in his gospel that uh, God uh, made all things by his word. Jesus is the word of God by which God made all things. But Paul also makes clear that all things are created in him. What does that mean for everything to be created in him? Uh, It means that things in heaven, things on earth, the whole created order finds its being in the Son. Jesus is the Lord of the created order. Uh, in, in, In him, everything has its source. This includes, Paul tells us, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. The entire universe is created in Jesus, in and by Jesus. Paul especially highlights authority structures here. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, every earthly and heavenly authority is under Christ, whether political rulers or the angelic realm. Kings and nations are called to, uh, called to submit to Jesus as their Lord. Psalm 2 counsels kings to serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling, to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Uh, See, even even before the incarnation, the son is the one who is exalted as the Lord over all, to whom all kings of the earth owe their allegiance. We 
the church are called to spread that, that calling, that calling of Psalm 2, which is both a calling and a warning as we continue in, the, in that psalm, to all the kings of the earth, to all the magistrates, the rulers, the uh, senators, the presidents of the earth. We are called to tell them, this son of God is exalted as ruler over all, and you owe your allegiance to him. This applies to the angelic realm as well, Paul tells us. Both the righteous and the rebellious spiritual rulers are under Christ's authority. They owe their very existence to him. The way that Satan uh, receives this authority is, is, or re- lives under this authority is demonstrated in the story of Job. Remember, he cannot touch God's servant, Job, without God's permission. He can do no more than God allows. The same is true of the demonic host. In the Gospels, we see Jesus demonstrates his authority over the demons in his earthly ministry as he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him, Mark tells us in Mark 1. This reality should be a comfort to us. Though Satan and his host are powerful, uh, and they are wicked, and they, uh, have, they devise evil plans, they cannot lay a finger on God's, on God's people. They cannot lay a finger on us aside from God's sovereign will and apart from his purpose. So Jesus, Paul tells us, is the head of creation, the head of all of creation, and he's also, uh, he's also the means and the goal of creation. We read that he, all things were created through him and for him, Paul says. He is um, he in whom and by whom all things were created is the end or the goal of creation. The universe is sustained by him, sustained in him, as verse 17 tells us. All things hold together in Jesus. All of history is to be summed up in him. He is governing all things for his eternal purposes, and he is the center of the created order. He's the center of the created order. But, of course, we see very early on, as we've already seen, that that created order fell. Adam and Eve, who were called to be the image of God, plunged the created order headlong into sin and death, into the slavery of death and the rebellion and their fall. And so, Jesus, the, the Son, who is the Lord of the created order, in whom all things hold together, did not see fit to leave the creation, to leave Uh, God's creation to ruin, but rather uh, God in his love and his grace planned to redeem his created order and to bring it, bring into being a new creation. Paul moves on in the second section to uh, the reconciled world. The created order was disrupted under the curse because of man's rebellion and because of man's covenant breaking, but in God's grace he recreates and puts the the world to rights, and he does it Paul wants us to know by the same one in whom he created the world. He does it by the same agency by which he created all things through his son. Jesus is the image of God, and he is, in verse 18, the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And now in this new section, Paul parallels that with being the head of the church, the head of the body of Christ. Jesus, in his... Uh, resurrection and his ascension, pours out his spirit upon his people, upon the church, forming us as the body of Christ. We are the presence of Christ in this world. We are his body. And Paul is telling us, uh, and this is a very profound statement, that the, the church, the bringing into being of the church as the body of Christ, parallels the creation of the universe, the creation of the whole world. Jesus 
in the, sa- in the same way that he's the Lord of all creation, is now the head of the body, the church. Jesus is bringing into being a new created order, and that centers here in his people, in the church. The church in union with Jesus is the image of God in the new creation. The church is, in a sense, a microcosm of the universe. The future of the universe is bound up with the church. As the church is reconciled, we become, Paul tells us, the agents of reconciliation in the world. As our head, he gives life to us, the body. He is the source of our life just in the same way that he is the source of being for all creation. He sets our course and our actions are called to to serve his will and his purpose in the same way that the created order was called to uh, ultimately to serve his purpose. All things were are created in and through and for him. We, his people, are created in him. We are his body, and we are called to serve him. <clears throat> the church is the center, then, of the new creation. Of course, uh, the New Testament, as we go on, especially in the book of Revelation, we see that God's purpose ultimately is to bring his new creation to bear on, on the whole universe, to, be, to bring into being, uh, in the resurrection of the dead, Uh, a new heavens and a new earth. God is going to renew the whole world. But Paul is telling us here that 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 renewal, that new creation, he's not waiting on that. He's starting with us. We, the church, are the center of that new creation. We, the church, are the center, in a sense, of the universe. That sounds like it could be egotistical in a way. You know, really, us here, we're we're the center of the universe? Well, yes, Paul is telling us Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The church is the beginning of his new creation by which he is bringing bringing his new creation to bear on the whole world. The center of the universe isn't what's happening in the UN or what's happening in Washington, D.C. or in Lansing. It's what's happening here as God's people gather together, as we hear God's word, as we are renewed week by week at God's table, as we renew covenant with him as we share in fellowship with one another, living as God's people, living as Christ has called us to live in his new created order. The center of the universe is what happens in each local church spread around the world as we gather together to renew covenant with our Lord, and then as he scatters us, as he sends us, not not sending us just as we were, sending us changed, renewed each week, giving us his commission to go and transform the world and to bring his kingdom to bear on the world around us. So the body of the Christ, the body of Christ, the church is the center of this new creation. This is the primary institution through which God works in reconciling the world to himself. That reconciliation, that new creation then flows into our family life, our communities, our state and the whole world our uh, the reconciliation that we experience here in the church as we receive God's blessings corporately is to transform every facet of our lives. We are called to feel the the weight of God's new creation uh, deep in our own hearts. Jesus is Lord of all things. He is Lord of, of, uh, in the big picture, Lord of the universe, Lord of the creation. He's Lord of you. He's Lord of your life, your heart. He's Lord of your thoughts, your feelings. He's Lord of your family the way that you function and live as a family in your marriage and your parenting, uh, as you uh, kids, as you uh, listen to your parents, as you go to school, he's Lord of, of all of that. He has something to say about everything that you do. 
but his lordship is not burdensome to us. He tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Just as we read in in Deuteronomy 30, God does not give us uh, something, a law that we cannot keep. Not because we, in our own strength, are able to keep God's law. Not because we, in our own strength, can do what God calls us to do. Of course, it's, it's more than we can do on our own. But God pours his spirit upon us. We have God's spirit dwelling within us so that we can do uh, what God calls us to do. So Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation. He is, Paul tells us, the firstborn from the dead in verse 18. Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans 1 that he is declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, in his resurrection, is uh, his his resurrection is not just a one-time event. Of course, the resurrection of the Son of God is a one-time event in that Jesus is raised from the dead once and that has a finality to it. But it's not one time in the sense that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. That implies there are going to be more. And that's us his body, the church. We await the future resurrection. He is the inaugurator of the new birth. He is leading a great host to follow in resurrection. Paul elsewhere says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. We, are his, we as his body share in his resurrection life. Uh, we live in the reality of that resurrection now. And we wait for that future day when one day we will finally share in the ultimate resurrection of his people. So once again, the, first, the term firstborn uh, applies more than just sequence, but rank. He brings into reality a new created life, a new creation, and he is the head of that new creation. Paul says that the result of Jesus being first, firstborn from the dead is that he is preeminent in all things. He is the Lord, the captain, the head of the new creation order. Jesus is the temple of the new creation. When when God renews his covenant with Israel uh, throughout their life, they, we see a renewal of his presence. God uh, makes his covenant with his people at Sinai, and he comes and dwells among them in the tabernacle. Uh, he renews his covenant with them uh, as they uh, construct the temple, and his, his presence dwells there in the temple. Now here in the new creation, as God has brought about his new covenant with us, uh, where is God's temple presence? The answer is that it's in Jesus. Jesus is the temple of the new creation, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So whereas God once dwelt in the physical temple, that temple has now been destroyed, and Jesus is the meeting place of God and man. Jesus is the the body of Christ, is the meeting place of God and man. Uh, The body of Christ, Paul tells us, which is us, the church. We, the body of Christ, are where God meets us, where God meets man as we gather together as his people. The church, as the body, is the new temple in the world. In Jesus, the new temple, all things are being reconciled to God, and the means by which they are being reconciled is, Paul tells us, the blood of his cross. In Jesus' death on the cross, he makes peace by becoming the atoning sacrifice, the covering of our sin. And he's also made peace by reversing the curse over the universe, His death purchased our salvation, and it purchased the renewal of the created order, the renewal of the universe. So the very same things that Christ exercised over over the created order are now being reconciled in the new creation. Paul tells us once again, whether on earth or in heaven, rulers and authorities and dominions are being reconciled to the Son. We look around us and, 
and see the state of uh, world rulers, uh, whether in our own land or around the world, and this can be hard to believe. In, in what sense is uh, Jesus then reconciling the rulers of the world to himself? We can wonder how this, uh, how, uh, how true is this, that Jesus is going to reconcile all things, including the rulers of the earth, to himself when we look at the state of the world. Most of them are certainly not bowing the knee to Jesus as king. But does that mean that his reconciliation will never really be manifest in this age? Uh, well, no. Paul says that reconciliation is a reality, but one that will be worked out throughout history, progressively uh, throughout history. And the way that, that he's doing it is through the body of Christ, through us, the church. Our, Jesus has declared that he's reconciling all things to himself, but he's told us that the way he's doing that is through the church. And so when we look at the state of, of the world, when we look at the state of our rulers, our politicians, our calling isn't simply to despair, uh, isn't simply to give up hope. Our calling is to exercise what Jesus has called us to do as his people, to be the agents of reconciliation, to be a light to the nations, a light to the nations, uh, both to all the people of the nations and to the rulers of the nations, to make disciples of all nations. Our calling is to uh, bear, to shine the light of the gospel in our words, in our deeds, in the way that we live as God's people, in a way that the gospel will permeate into all facets of this new creation. As Jesus works through his church, he, uh, we will become a leaven that works into the rest of society. Paul uh, brings us in this text all the way through the story of the Son of God ruling over history to the Son ruling over the new creation. He's the Lord of creation and the Lord of the new creation. He's reconciling all things to himself. He's reconciling each one of you. He has reconciled you uh, through the blood of his cross. He's reconciling your communities through, uh, through you as you preach the gospel, as you speak uh, the gospel to your neighbors, as you show the love of Christ to your neighbors. He's reconciling uh, nations to himself as, as we make uh, disciples of all nations. He's reconciling the whole universe to himself. And we find our place then in this story as objects then of God's grace. As we, uh, as we consider the story of God's creation, the fall, and God's redemption of the world through his son, our place in this story and our lives find meaning in this story because Paul tells us we are objects of God's grace in that story. We are the ones on whom God has poured out his grace in reconciliation. We are the ones who have been brought to, to peace with God through the, the blood of his cross. But we're not just objects to receive God's grace. We receive that grace, and Paul tells us we are to become then uh, active in God's redemption of the world, active in his reconciliation. We become agents of that grace, agents of that reconciliation. We are to herald the news that Jesus is king over all, all creation, that he is this king of all creation, is reconciling all creation to himself, calling all men to repent and bow the knee to him. We're to work this reconciliation into every sphere of our lives because Jesus is Lord over all of it, Paul tells us. Lord over our, our families, Lord, Lord over our, our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, over our work, our vocations, our friendships, our neighborhoods, our states, all arenas that God calls us to, we are called to bring the reality of the gospel of reconciliation to those spheres. 
Finally, Paul exhorts us on the basis of our personal reconciliation, on the basis of our reconciliation as God's people, as the body of Christ, to continue in the faith. Continue, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. God has reconciled you to himself, and so by the grace of his spirit, continue in that faith, continue in the reconciliation that he has worked in you. God has reconciled him, reconciled us to himself with a goal, Paul tells us. The goal of that reconciliation is that we are ultimately, on the last day, to be presented to the Father as God's own children, as those who've been purchased by the blood of his Son. We are to be presented to the Father, un, not unchanged, but we are to be presented to him holy and blameless by Jesus. Paul tells us to persevere with that in mind, live lives of holiness, lives of uh, blameless lives, with the, the future in mind, the future uh, of Jesus, having purchased you with the blood of his cross, presenting you as children of God before the Father. So let's live in the reality of this reconciliation. Bring the gospel to bear on all things. Bring the gospel to all creatures. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord over all of your life, and press on, as Paul tells us, in the hope of this gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us, for your grace that you've manifested to us in your Son, that in him you have reconciled us to yourself through his cross, and that uh, you are so gracious not only to bring us to peace with you, but to use us, uh, weak and uh, lowly vessels. You've brought us up into fellowship with yourself, and you give us a mission to carry out this reconciliation, to bring your gospel to the world around us. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to be faithful, to be active, to bring your gospel to all that you bring us in contact with. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. One God. Amen. identify with the preparations of a family meal. Uh, when we come together, we're usually quite hungry. The smell of the cooking has created more hunger pangs and eager anticipation in all of us. It's sometimes difficult to sit down, wait for the hostess to be seated, wait to say a prayer of thanksgiving, and then to orderly pass the serving bowls and platters without stopping to snitch a little bit along the way. We're hungry. We want to eat. But what satisfaction comes when we finally partake? The meal is good, the fellowship is sweet, and all are restored to peace and joy in the home when we leave the table and we're full and content. Let this be a picture of this meal. We come to church weak, maybe even famished, and maybe not even sure if the meal is what we really need. But yet we hunger for the Word, for the Spirit and the Father. And we, when we have come to the fount of God, prepared our souls, and given thanks, and eaten, we will be full of Jesus. You will be content. You will be at peace and joyful in the Holy Spirit. Everyone likes to go away from the table full. So eat and drink by faith so that you will be full of Jesus, his Spirit, and his Father. To the table invited are invited all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ, his body, which is the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine together, we're acknowledging that we're sinners 
without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. And we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come, welcome to his table. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.